0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama of Tibet, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Most Reverend Dr. Catherine Jefford Shori of the Episcopal Church, and Professor Sayed Hossein Nasser of George Washington University. I moderated a conversation between them at the Interfaith Summit on Happiness, a live public event held on October 17, 2010, at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This conversation is included in our show, Pursuing Happiness. View video footage of this event and download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. President, for your generous uh, introduction. Uh, Good afternoon to each each of you. It's a great privilege to welcome you to this Interfaith Summit on Happiness. I am John Witte. I serve as director of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, the host of this afternoon's summit. Our center is devoted to studying the religious sources and dimensions of law, politics, and society. The American Declaration of Independence proclaims famously that all persons have the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was a shining new ideal for America and for the world, a normative totem for each generation to make more real and more concrete. This was also a fluid ideal, with every person given the liberty to map and to measure happiness for themselves and in their own way. As a consequence, happiness as a concept, both historically and today, has a range of meanings, from pleasure and satisfaction and well-being to understandings of wholeness, of self-fulfillment, of blessedness, of virtuous attainment, even to understandings of blessing and beatitude and holiness and the pursuit of perfection. However it's defined, however, happiness seems always to be best achieved in community, if not in communion with others. The doors to happiness always open outward, Viktor Frankl said famously echoing Soren Kierkegaard. It is through the love of our family and friends. It is through love of neighbor and stranger. It is through acts of kindness and mercy and equity to everyone about us that happiness seems to flourish the best. Happiness in brief is a community exercise, a community event, a community achievement like this very summit. In this summit, we want to plumb some of the deep wisdom on happiness in four great world religions, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, represented on this stage by some of their strongest intellectual and spiritual leaders. We want to hear about how their sacred texts and traditions teach us about happiness in all of its variety and in all of its depth. We want to have a learned and lively conversation amongst these four great leaders as we seek to come to a better understanding of how we separately and together as people of faith can converge on the understanding of happiness for all persons and for all peoples. The moderator of our conversation today is Ms. Krista Tippett, educated at Brown and at Yale, author of the bestseller, Einstein's God. Ms. Tippett is the creator and the host of the public radio program, formerly known as Speaking of Faith and now known as Being. Ms. Tippett will lead us in a robust and lively conversation, um, and Ms. Tippett will introduce our three panelists, our distinguished rabbi, our distinguished bishop, and our distinguished professor when we come to the open conversation portion of our program. But before we go to that open conversation, We want to have the privilege of hearing the remarkable man whom we've all come to hear. Author of 14 tracks on happiness, exemplar of the morality of happiness, embodiment of the spirit of happiness, Emory's most prestigious professor, the Tibetan community's most beloved leader, Buddhism's most eminent teacher, the world's most visible, And dare I say, happiest Nobel laureate, ladies and gentlemen, I give you His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama.
2: brothers and sisters. Of course, happiness uh, perhaps I think uh, the real I think meaning, happiness or when I say the happiness mainly in the in the sense, deep satisfaction. So there are naturally uh, two levels, one mainly related with physical sort of uh, Experience. experience and one mental experience. So desire for that, I think since we human being uh, started on this planet, uh, I think same, uh, maybe a few hundred thousand years. Uh, but of course the, uh, what is it, the nature of the happiness, I think the last few hundred thousand years, I think some change uh, because human intelligence change. So the perception or the perception
3: uh,
2: or the, the level of the uh, happy experiences also may be different. Uh, so the, uh, I think the very reason I from the Buddhist viewpoint, of course, uh, the very reason the different religious tradition. Uh, uh, developed. Uh, developed on this planet, uh, certainly not for misery, <laughs> not for trouble, but for deep satisfaction. That's very clear. And particularly when we're passing through some difficult period, it looks hopeless. At that time, religious faith give us hope. Inner strength. Uh, so I think the various different religious traditions uh, last, I think, uh, uh, more than 2,000 years. I think really made tremendous sort uh, contribution uh, for millions of people. So today, uh, now, 21st century, of course, the material development highly developed, but still, I think various religious tradition still had very very important role, and particularly the people uh, sort of get, I think, satisfaction from material value material facility, mainly physical level, Uh, those, I think, uh, rich family, their physical comfort, I think very high standard, but that no guarantee, the same sort of standard in peace of mind, more worry, more anxiety, Perhaps more jealousy, <laughs> more fear. <laughs> so, the, this moment, I think this century, modern, modern period, uh, in order to provide uh, mental level of satisfaction, inner peace, various different religious tradition, uh, I think immense Role. And then, meantime, in order to make more effective contribution from various religious traditions for a better world, better human being, more compassionate human being, more law abiding human being, uh, mainly it's a separate discipline or moral principle, Uh, the various religious tradition among ourselves uh, close understanding. And through that way, we can make a more effective sort of contribution. But sometimes some people may say, oh, uh, before sort of uh, helping to humanity, firstly, you yourself manage, <laughs> well, <laughs> no longer quarrel <coral> or something. <laughs> People may say that, isn't it? <laughs> so I think among ourselves, real sort of harmony on the, on the basis of mutual admiration, mutual respect, uh, mutual appreciation, That very possible develop. So these are I think very important. So uh, like this sort of meeting or get this gathering. I think immense help. So that's all. Next.
0: Thank you. Your holiness. <laughs> are we, I, I think I'd like the monitors. Oh, can you hear? Are you alright? Okay. You can't. All right. Um, so I was told to speak up, and I'm speaking up. Maybe that's a little bit better. That's better. All right. I also don't see a clock here, so could someone loan me their watch? <laughs> your Holiness, what an honor it is to be here with you. And
2: now I can see better All right. your face. <laughs> Oh, did they get on it then? <laughs> Yes, yes. All right,
0: well, I want you to get a good look. Um, Otherwise,
2: t- there's a very strong light. I can't see. Now much better, yes.
0: So now we can see in here.
2: <laughs> very good.
0: You know, there's a phrase in American culture, the good life. Oh. Someone asked me a few months ago, has that discussion, that recurring theme of the good life been raised again in the wake of the economic downturn? And I I realized that I wasn't hearing anyone talk about the good life, but I had just accepted this invitation to be a part of this conversation. And I realized that, in fact, I think that American conversation, that the longings behind that and the focus of that have shifted, in fact, to a far-flung conversation about the nature of human happiness. And I believe that this five-year project at Emory and this summit on happiness today it is a powerful expression of that and also an expression of how it represents a shift in perspective. Uh, because even in previous generations when we talked about the good life, it was in terms of simplifying conditions and circumstances. It was about the conditions and circumstances that might lead to a good life. I think that this discussion we're now having about happiness is about an inner orientation that can make life good in and through many kinds of circumstances and conditions. So it is a less materialistic conversation. It is, in essence, a a spiritual conversation. Though we all know that spirituality is defined and described in many different ways in 21st century lives. The way His Holiness the Dalai Lama has translated His wisdom on happiness has very interestingly, I think, energized and deepened this cultural interest we have in happiness. We have just begun to experience his his wisdom and his graciousness here. And now we are going to add some distinguished Jewish, Christian, and Muslim voices to that conversation. We have Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of the United Kingdom. Bishop Catherine Jefferts Story of the Episcopal Church, and Professor Dr. Sayed Hossein Nasser of George Washington University. Okay. So we are going to turn this into a discussion in a moment, but first, um, each of the, the three of our leaders will. Um, Take a seat alongside His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Rabbi Sachs will begin. And and give us an introduction to the contribution their tradition might make to this collective unfolding discussion on the nature of human happiness.
4: Friends, I think you'll agree we have been privileged to hear words of wisdom and grace from one of the great spiritual masters of our time, your holiness, we are blessed by your presence, inspired by your teaching, and if we could only learn one thing from you, which is how to laugh the way you do, <laughs> I think we'd increase the happiness in the world. It's infectious. It's At moments like this that we realize how wrong Tolstoy was when he wrote at the beginning of Anna Karenina that all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. As if happiness were like the answer to a question in mathematics in which there are many wrong answers but only one right one. Happiness isn't like that. It comes in many forms. There is the happiness of one who is at peace with the world. And there is the happiness of one who successfully changes the world. There is the happiness of a Mozart that is as sweet and natural as a spring breeze. And there is a happiness of a Beethoven carved from the rock by struggle and pain. And so it is with cultures. Each culture conceives of happiness in its own way and we are enriched by the sheer multiplicity of ways in which human beings have flourished and made a blessing over life. So let me therefore from the Jewish tradition add just one dimension already hinted at, which I think we tend to forget nowadays. The Hebrew, the Biblical Hebrew has two key words for happiness. One is Osher and one is Simcha and they are very different. Osher is the happiness we feel. Simcha is the happiness we make. Osher we can, is the happiness we can experience on our own. But simcha is the happiness that only exists in virtue of being shared. I would define simcha as social happiness. So in the Bible, it's something that is shared by husband and wife. It's something that on festivals is shared by the whole community. It's something to which we invite the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the people who would otherwise be vulnerable and alone. Simcha is the happiness we make when we come together to give collective thanks for the miracle and the gift of simply being alive. It's something exuberant, joyous, celebratory and it is something we only feel when we leave behind the separatenesses of each of us and become a part of a we, an us, a community. Simcha tells us that happiness is part of the tenor and texture of our relationships and the way our culture is geared to a shared sense of gratitude. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says something very paradoxical but which we rediscover to our cost in age after age and we are rediscovering it today. There is Moses speaking to the new generation who will carry on where he left off. And he says, you and your parents have just spent 40 years Wandering in the wilderness, you had no land, no home, no comfort, no security. You thought that was the difficult part. Actually that was the easy part. The difficult part is affluence. Because that's when you forget where you came from. That is when you forget why you are here. Affluence makes you forget to give thanks. And when a society forgets to give thanks, it loses the art of happiness. People think of the I rather than the you. They lose the art of relationship. Marriages begin to fail. Communities grow weak. Society begins to decline. And all, says Moses, because in his words, you forgot to serve God with joy and gladness of heart out of the abundance of all good things. And how right he was. The consumer society is constantly tempting us all the time to spend money we don't have, to buy things we don't need, for the sake of a happiness that won't last. In fact, the consumer society, by constantly making us aware of what we don't have, instead of making us thankful for what we do have, has turned out to be the most efficient system yet devised for the manufacture and distribution of unhappiness. Simcha reminds us of the basic distinction just made by his holiness between material goods and spiritual goods. It's a very interesting difference. If I have a certain amount of money and I give some of it to you, I have less. If I have a certain amount of power and I give it to you, I have less power. But if I have a certain amount of love or friendship or trust and I give it to you, I don't have less, I have more. Spiritual goods turn out to be The things that the more we share, the more we have, and so it follows that spiritual happiness is the greatest renewable source of energy we have. And we make it by sharing. So the one Jewish insight I would add to our conversation is let's think a little less of the happiness I feel And more of the happiness we make when we come together as families, as communities, as communities of faith, respecting and loving one another, joined in that bond of fellowship and love. Thank you.
0: Bishop Jefford shorey would you like to take the place of honor now? It
5: is a joy to be with you. Oh. It is a joy. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, thank you for your introduction to happiness from Buddhist perspective. I was struck by your saying that happiness is both physical, and mental. Uh, In Christian tradition, it is very important for us that God became human, that God took human form, and therefore bodies are of utmost importance. But as Rabbi Sachs has said, sometimes we take the goods of this world too seriously. We think that they are God rather than God. Happiness for Christians is about right relationship, right relationship with God, with self, and with other. Other, both other human beings and all of the rest of creation. And it is that part that we are learning anew. Right relationship with God is putting God first in the center of things, understanding, as Rabbi Sachs has said that nothing can replace God. Right relationship with other human beings and also with the rest of creation is understanding that all is made in the image of God, that it all reflects the divine. Um, I'm reminded of Indra's net and the, and the remarkable... Um, understanding that each part of creation reflects the whole that is learning that we are only beginning to touch. Happiness in right relationship means using the blessings of this world for the benefit of all, that none of us can be truly happy unless we all are. We talk about that both in terms of shalom great Hebrew vision of peace, right relationship with God and neighbor and creation. And Christian take on that probably most clearly called the reign of God. Reign. When God rules. When God rules. When God rules, all is in right relationship. We cooperate with that understanding. When we cooperate, we find greater happiness. When we don't take ourselves as God, uh, we find much greater happiness when we are not in the center of things. When other created things are not at the center, too, we are finding right relationship. Happiness communally, happiness in community, uh, not easy. Um, the eternal search but it is it is in pursuing that that we find greater happiness Um. thank you
6: Your Holiness, we've met for 40 years on different continents. It's a great joy to see you again because your presence itself is happiness. To discuss happiness is one thing. discuss happiness is one thing, to be happy is something else. And the paradox of our world is that in order to listen to a lecture on happiness, people have to stand in line for two hours unhappily to get in. That's the world in which we live. Allow me to make a few comments uh, from the Islamic From the point of the Islamic tradition, upon the brief but very fecund and profound comments that you made upon happiness. First of all, this division between physical happiness and meditational, I prefer that to mental happiness. If you allow me to use a presumptuous Buddhist term, which has a very deep Islamic resonance, one perhaps can talk about nirvanic happiness and samsaric happiness, but samsaric happiness is already a mirage, and it's that which we pursue most of our life. From the Islamic point of view, the word for happiness, which appears in the Quran, sacred scripture of Islam, is the word sa'at, sa'ada, sa'id, a whole series of terms which are related to each other, and it's identified very clearly with the paradisal state. That is that is the state of those in paradise, in heaven. There are many other terms of course which have correspondences to Buddhist eschatology. You have written a wonderful book about this. Somebody should compare that with the Abrahamic eschatologies. But that means something very deep. That is we live in a world in which we're not often happy. But we never leave the pursuit of happiness which means itself that we're not really made for this world alone. The very fact that we are never fully satisfied with all the physical and psychological demands of our lower passionate soul, means that we're not only that. So unhappiness itself is the proof, in a sense, of our spiritual character. Otherwise, everyone would be happy in doing everyday things. And every happiness that we seek outside of spiritual happiness comes to an end, and the ending is always sadness. What separates happiness from the experiences of life other than happiness is sorrow, longing, separation, termination, pain, all of these things, all of which mean that the state of happiness for those who only seek it in the samsaric world in a sense is always temporal finitude. It always comes to an end. And that is, I think, one of the deepest intuitions that all the religions of the world have presented to human beings. In Islam, we do not only talk about the pursuit of happiness, unless by pursuit you mean a kind of profession, but pursuit in the ordinary sense of pursuing, but the attainment happiness. We are in this world not only to pursue happiness, but to attain it. Because there are some people who have the idea that it's life itself or even the truth, there's no such thing as truth. I'm a philosopher, I speak as, for one moment as that. Just following the truth is enough. Whereas our traditions believe that what is important is to attain happiness, as your holiness of have said in so many of your writings. Then you pointed very briefly to something which is extremely important, and that is the levels of happiness. Happiness is not only one level. Everything in the deepest sense in our universe is layered, it's hierarchic, it's structured. I don't mean in political sense, I mean in an inward sense, in the sense that you, you are the Dalai Lama and the simple peasant who doesn't have your knowledge at all in Tibet and there are all levels in between. And happiness is the same way. Somehow our soul realizes that there are modes of happiness and each human being characterizes his life according to what he or she conceived this mode of hierarchy to be. That what is it that makes me most happy? Then what is the second one? What is the third one? And people who go through life without being able to smile at the moment of death are usually those who've gotten the priorities wrong, have not been able to see this hierarchy. Of course there's happiness in drinking a cold glass of water when we are thirsty. Not of course saying, Cola is happiness, which I received on the airplane as I was coming down here. <laughs> I don't mean that. All the way from that to what you alluded to meditation, concentration, reaching the nirvanic consciousness. In the same way that we have levels of consciousness, there are levels of happiness. And happiness is the human being who through life can go through these various stages. Happiness does not preclude or exclude. Social happiness, but it is not only social happiness. Happiness has to start from within us. It's a happy human being who creates a happy ambience. A happy ambience does not necessarily create a happy human being. Let me just conclude, because I only have a few minutes to speak, in the philosophical sense, to be happy is to be oneself. And here the Islamic tradition emphasizes that God created us with a primordial nature, what we call din al fatra or al fetra in Arabic, a primordial nature. And that primordial nature was combined with joy and happiness, it was paradisal. And so in a sense, happiness is our right, but not as fallen beings. We first have to rediscover that prim- primordial nature, and life's goal is precisely to rediscover who we are. Once we know who we are, we are happy. There are very few human beings in the modern world who are happy with themselves. I have many friends who go to some village in Afghanistan before it was bombed or India or someplace and see that people are happy. They say, what right do you have to be happy? You don't have television, you don't have refrigerator, you don't get stuck in 495 traffic like I do five hours a day in Washington. That part they don't say. Uh, They think that happiness should be impossible in those states It's because they do not realize that these people are perhaps closer to being who they really are. They have also fallen, but not as much as this totally exteriorized modern human being who has to always concentrate all of his energies outwardly. And I could not but agree 100% with what our dear rabbi said about consumerism. We live in a world in which we are fooled into accepting the causes of unhappiness as happiness. And that is one of the great tragedies which is resulting now in our destruction of the very environment in which we live. The environmental crisis is due to this substitution really. It's to do, of course, to a false science of nature and all of those things, but also to a consumer's philosophy which believes that happiness is to have, is to want more and more. Once he was asked of a great Sufi master from Khorasan, what do you want? He said, I want not to want. That is the epitome of happiness. And, and in conclusion, just let me quote one single Arabic sentence, very famous proverb that it says, Man sa'idan mata sa'idan. That is, he who lives happily dies happily and happiness is a permanent state of the soul and we are here to attain it. Thank you.
0: So I'd like to ask each of you one question and then have us interact. And if you have questions of each other, I'd also welcome that. Um, Your Holiness, as several people have already mentioned, you radiate happiness you seem to embody happiness and you also have a wonderful sense of humor Um, and yet you are familiar with suffering your life has unfolded on a canvas that is marked by gravity and the fate of your people and your tradition so how does your understanding of happiness your notion of happiness encompass that encompass suffering and the hardness of life and speak to that
3: he
2: Of course, uh, my life, not easy, that's clear. Uh, I think, perhaps I think, uh, firstly, when I see some problem, some tragedy, uh, I always look from different angle. And sometimes the tragedy, one aspect, tragedy, but that same sort of event may, also may have some positive thing. So when I look more holistic way, then they, that event not 100% sort of negative. They are also part of positive. Now, one example I usually is telling people: we lost our own country Uh, itself, sad. Uh, But that brings different new opportunity. There's immense benefit. So, like that, that's one thing. And second, uh, I think I think one of you I think mentioned when 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 we face some sort of sad thing. If you look very closely, it looks unbearable. Look from distance, there's not that much so unbearable, one thing. Uh, then, another thing, as one a Buddhist master, 8th century, mentioned, uh, when we face some problem, uh, think. Uh, analyze the problem, situation. Situation. If the situation uh, can overcome eventually, then no need worry, make effort. If there is no way to overcome that, then no use much sort of uh, sadness, much worry. Uh, So that I feel very realistic approach. Uh, uh, so these things I usually should do, and and, and also, if our sort of friend spent, I think, uh, one week together, then you may notice a certain period my sadness. <laughs> Oh, with my anger, some tremor also, (laughs) due to some irritation. That also, as a human being, isn't possible. But overall, okay.
0: (laughs) And I think it can be very interesting for this next hour or so if we not only honor and enjoy the echoes of similarity, but also the differences. So I wonder, and I'd pose this to you, Rabbi Sachs, and even Bishop Shory, um, it seems to me that, uh, that the Hebrew Bible, let's say the Psalms, really wallow in sadness and suffering and anger as a way through those human experiences. So I wonder how do you, you know, is there... Uh, How how would you, how do you respond to this idea and how might you see it differently? Or what might you add to that approach to sadness? And um, Rabbi Sachs, I know that you have just finished sitting Shiva at the death of your mother. So you've been in a period of grief and mourning, which is very much lived and embodied.
4: Yeah, it is true that if you read the Jewish literature and you read jewish history happiness is not the first word that comes to mind <laughs> we do we do degrees in misery postgraduate angst and advanced <laughs> guilt and we do all this stuff you know Have and yet talk- somehow or other when all of that is at an end we get together and we celebrate. And where I love what His Holiness has just said, how He Himself has lived, a story that I resonate with, a story of suffering and exile, and yet He has come through it still smiling. And that to me is how I have always defined my faith as a Jew. The definition of a Jew Israel is, as it says in Genesis 34, one who struggles, wrestles with God and with humanity and prevails. And Jacob says something very profound to the angel. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that is how I feel about suffering. When something bad happens, I will not let go of that bad thing until I have discovered the blessing that lies within it. When my late father died, now I'm in mourning for my late mother. That sense of grief and bereavement suddenly taught me that so many things that I thought were important external success, all of that is irrelevant. You lose a parent, you suddenly realize what a slender thing life is. How easily you can lose those you love. And then out of that comes a new simplicity. And that is why sometimes all the pain and the tears lift you to a much higher and deeper joy when you say to the bad times, I will not let you go until you bless me. Thank you.
0: To that word blessing and blessed, I guess this is a sneak preview of your talk tomorrow, Bishop Jeffrey Short, because you, 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 I have read it in advance and you, you talk about the many words in Christian tradition, in biblical Greek, uh, that, that add up to happiness. And blessing is one of those. And I was, I'm very struck when you, when you bring this discussion with happiness in connection with the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about blessedness and happiness. And it, is, it actually sounds very Buddhist <laughs> when I read it in the context of preparing for this. And yet I think... Um, Yes. So, Rabbi Sacks, you said you've also written that uh, about the Oyve theory of Jewishness, <laughs> um, and I think that there's been a, a temptation in Christianity—not a temptation, a tendency—to think about happiness that will only be complete after this life, right, in the pure, unmediated presence of God. Um, talk to me about how you work with that tendency and how you see that evolving in the imagination of Christians
5: now. Mm. There's this ongoing tension between seeing happiness as joining with God, as communion with God that's only possible in the afterlife and the insistence that human beings are created to be happy uh, that happiness is possible in this life. And I, I was struck in thinking about the question about suffering, that th- th- there's <clears throat> a couple of places in the Psalms where it says, happy are those who will dash the enemy's babies against the rock. It's, it's an insistence on justice. It's a, it's a demand for restoration of right relationships. It's not it's not finding joy in death, it's taking what is and insisting that greater happiness for all is possible. There's the, the particular piece of Christianity that insists that sometimes suffering is a route to happiness for the larger community. Uh, that kind of suffering may not be chosen, but it contains blessing within it. Uh, the sense that our, our goal is this fully restored creation at right relationship with all that is, and sometimes the journey there requires us to enter into suffering and to demand to insist that there is blessing in the midst of that, wrestling with the angel. Um, It it must be there. You have created us to be happy. You have created us to be good. Now show us. Show us the way through this. Show us the possibility for which all that is, is created. Um.
0: Professor Nasser... um It seems to me that a distinctive word that Islam brings to this discussion of happiness, happiness and virtue, is the notion of beauty. You've written a great deal about that. I've been so struck across the years by Muslim conversation partners talking about the moral value of beauty. And um, that, you know, the saying of the Prophet that God is beautiful and he loves beauty. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the link you understand between beauty, and virtue, and happiness?
6: First of all, uh, in the Arabic language, the word for beauty and virtue is the same. And goodness, all three. The root, which is also the root of my own name, my name is Hussein. now made famous thanks to your president, new president, everybody knows it. Like the root H-S-N in Arabic means these three things, beauty, virtue, and goodness. In the Islamic Muslim mind, they're not separated from each other. Uh, In the deepest sense, uh, goodness in the ordinary sense uh, deals with external actions, in a deeper sense with virtues within us. Beauty can deal also with external forms and it can deal with beauty of the soul, beauty of the spirit within us. But beauty in a sense is more interiorizing. Beauty is what draws us directly to the divine, to the divine reality. I says presumptuous to talk this wholeness about Buddhist sayings, but the Buddha says that the beauty of my image saves. Uh, so the beauty of celestial beauty that is the centre of the sacred art of various traditions is salvific. It's a way of salvation. And ugliness, which is the opposite of beauty, in Arabic also means evil. The ugly is the evil. One of the signs that we live in an evil world is the ugly ambience we've created for ourselves. And look at the remarkable predominance of beauty in nature. Take us human beings out and look at nature. Remarkable predominance of beauty. From the fish that swim under the sea in coral reefs that we're now destroying so rapidly in the Gulf of Mexico, to the great mountains whose snows are melting thanks to the fact they are driving too many cars. I've been a person at the forefront of the environmental movement for 50 years, so I feel very sensitive towards this. I think what is happening is proof precisely of the error of our world view. But when we look at nature, look how beautiful it is. And many people today in the West who are atheists are the greatest protectors of nature because they find through the beauty of nature the vacuum created in their soul in the loss of the sacredness human form. And therefore even there, they're the deepest sense of spiritual. The great paradox is that in the United States, they're the greatest defenders, the atheists, the greatest defenders of the natural environment. And uh, this is really, what a paradox, it's I think it would be more paradoxical in human history. Now Islam looks upon this quality of beauty as not being something accidental, to be virtuous is to be beautiful. To be good is to be beautiful. And that is why wherever Islam meant, went, it created a civilization based on beauty. Look at Islamic art, the carpets, the tile, the, and that again is one of the great tragedies that we have now some of the ugliest cities in the world in the Islamic world. The great contrast between a city like Isfahan and this modernized part of Karachi or Cairo. They're all part of the same civilization. But the spiritual aspect of beauty has not disappeared with the ugliness of urban sprawl. It is central to Islamic spirituality and Islamic spirituality sees even morality in terms of spiritual beauty. Because a moral act should emanate from a virtuous soul. And a virtuous soul is the soul that is beautiful. If I were to translate the word virtuous soul into Persian or Arabic, it would mean beautiful soul. So yes, Beauty is central, and it's beauty that brings us happiness. Because our souls in that primordial condition that I mentioned were created in beauty. We're drawn to beauty like a firefly to the candle. Our soul is drawn to beauty, and beauty makes us happy, except it depends what condition our soul is in. As he said, uh, you could listen to the 21st Concerto of Mozart, the second movement, which is a celestial piece of Western music, and be happy for a long, long time. You could listen to this bang bang, which is called music today, and be happy for five minutes and then get bored and go to something else. But our soul seeks beauty, and it's beauty that makes the soul happy. Everything. even says it's a beautiful dish you've made when we are hungry. So yes, there's a very deep nexus between beauty and happiness. Unhappy is the person who realizes inner beauty.
0: Would any of you like to respond to each other, any of this? Yes, Rabbi Sachs.
4: I, I, I was very moved by, by the beauty of your words and, and, I I agree with them totally. I just wanted to add a little footnote. Um, A very great rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Cook, who was the rabbi in Israel in the early part of the 21st century, found himself stuck in London, where I come from, during the First World War. He hated London. But there was one bit of London he loved, which was the National Gallery. And he would go to the National Gallery and sit day after day looking at the portraits by Rembrandt. He even said that when God created light on the first day of creation, that was a special spiritual light because the sun and the moon didn't get created until the fourth day. So it wasn't physical light, it was a special holy light. And he said, God took some of that light and gave it to Rembrandt. <laughs> and the thing about repeat the characters in Rembrandt's paintings is that they're not beautiful. But they shine with an inner radiance. And as well as the love of beauty, I, I also think there's a religious challenge to see beauty in things that outwardly don't look that beautiful. And that is special.
0: I've noticed in... um some of what you've all written in preparation for this conference, as the monotheists among us here in the panel, that there's a lot of attention to defining happiness and to the many words that are used in our different traditions and in our languages, in our, in our traditions, original language. And, and it, it makes me think that, that in this culture in particular, if we are going to take happiness seriously in a whole new way, as I think many of us want to, we do have to wrestle a bit with that word. That also leads me to wonder if American culture has somehow been fundamentally led astray from the outset by defining happiness as a right. As what? As a right. Is this something that we have to work with in order to have this new conversation? Yes.
6: Uh, I've been very much concerned with this of late in trying to compare the attitude of various religions to the question of rights because Western civilization keeps talking about human rights, human rights, human rights all the time. And other religious civilizations, now that they don't like being human, they still have always seen this somewhat differently. And that is a question of the relation of rights to responsibilities. Uh, I think you have something very important there. By emphasizing the rights of man to happiness, nothing is said about the responsibilities of man. And many American generations have sort of expected the governments to provide for them help to exercise their rights, but never really the responsibilities very much, unless people have had individual conscience taught in churches and synagogues. I think the time for, has come for us to realize: it's first responsibilities, then rights. The word "responsible." comes from the Latin word "res," which means response, echo. We are ourselves responses to God's creative act. So by existing, we are responsible. And it's from accepting that responsibility that issues all our rights. I think if we do not balance in our present generation and the generation that is to come, once again, a correct balance between responsibilities and rights. Just talking about human rights is going to end by just end, terminating human existence. We need to accept responsibility, first and foremost, towards other creatures, human beings, towards God's nature, and ultimately towards God himself, of course.
0: Your Holiness, um, I wonder how you react to happiness being defined as a right.
2: Huh? I think that's very right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, you do. Very right. You do. Oh.
2: <laughs> I always see, believe and also see, share with the people, the very purpose of our life is for happiness. Those non-believer, also see, they felt the uh, religion, religious faith see, brings a lot of sort of complication so without that, you see, they feel they easier to achieve happy life. <laughs> so I think the very purpose of our existence is for happiness. Uh, I think our life, I think ultimately based on hope. There is no guarantee that tomorrow or next month or next year or next century is something. A wonderful, something good, nobody guaranteed that. Something better. Something better. But we simply, you see, the hope. Oh, in spite of today's difficulties, oh, future will be better. So we ma- we're making effort. If hope gone, completely hopeless, then uh, I think that very attitude may shorten our life. Then a person could a little bit impatience and experience hopelessness, then suicide. So therefore, uh, our life depend on hope, hope for better, for happiness. So therefore, I feel, uh, maybe I feel uh, too simple, maybe. <laughs> but I feel like that, the very purpose of our life, I can, uh, we can, we can say happiness, So that mentioned your constitution. And then also, you see, equally very right. You see, the uh, happiness not come from sky, but we must make a happy life. So we have the responsibility. Uh, The government cannot provide happiness. Uh, Happiness must create within ourselves and our family. So ultimately, our own responsibility, isn't it? That's my view, of course, but here I I think I want to make clear, of course, to the audience, uh, Buddhism, Buddhist thinking is more on the uh, law of causality rather than creator, Buddhism and Jainism. So if you go more, more sort of philosophical field, then we have big barrier. (laughs) <laughs> Even some people say, you see, Buddhist, Buddhism is uh, kind of theistic. Atheism. 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 <laughs> atheism. atheism. Right. Uh, but again, you see, some people say, not A- Buddhism is not atheism because it A- 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 means anti.
7: Anti-God. Yeah.
2: So, atheism means anti-God. In that sense, Buddhism is not anti-God. Buddhism respect the different tradition, theistic tradition, certainly. And myself also. uh, Deep sort of of admiration. All those major tradition. It is, I would say, no question. It's the last sort of um, more than 1,000 years or 2,000 years, these major spiritual major spiritual spiritual tradition give immense benefit to humanity so so therefore uh, obviously there is sufficient plenty of reasons to respect to admire to appreciation to appreciate but in the in the meantime i always make distinction Faith, appreciation, respect to different things. Faith, my own case, faith uh, Buddhism, to Buddhism, to Buddhism, but respect to all religions.
0: Um, Bishop Shuri and then Rabbi Sacks.
5: Happiness, not a right, but a duty. Um, and a duty not just to oneself, but to the whole community, to the whole of creation. Uh, when, we see it, when we see it primarily as a right, it is so individually focused that at least many Americans lose the, lose the perspective of the larger whole. Um, right to pursue happiness on behalf of society, on, hap- on behalf of all creation.
4: I'd like just to reflect on one other word, which is pursuit. Because as anyone who thought deeply about Han, Aristotle was very good on this, Ecclesiastes, likewise, finding happiness doesn't necessarily follow from pursuing it. Sometimes the deepest happiness comes when you're least expecting it and there is a wonderful story about an 18th century rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev who is looking at people rushing to and fro in the town square and he wonders why they're all running so frenetically and he stops one and he says why are you running and the man says I'm running to make a living and the rabbi says to him how come you're so sure that the living is in front of you and you have to run to catch it up. Maybe it's behind you and you got to stop and let it catch up with you. Now which bits of contemporary culture do we stop and let our blessings catch up with us? Now that is called the Sabbath which we all share. The Sabbath is when we celebrate the things that are important but not urgent. And I remember once um, taking a, uh, an, a you know, an atheist, actually, I think an atheist, who was the premier child care specialist in Britain, to see a little Jewish primary school and some of the stuff they do there. And she saw on Friday, you know, the little children preparing for the Sabbath, the little five-year-old mother and father blessing the five-year-old children and, welcoming the five-year-old guests, and she's fascinated by this Sabbath which she has never experienced. And she asked one five-year-old boy, what do you like most about the Sabbath? And he says, oh, what don't you like? And the five-year-old boy, being an orthodox child, says, you can't watch television, it's terrible. (laughs) And then she said, what do you like about the Sabbath? And he said, It's the only time Daddy doesn't have to rush away. And sometimes we don't need to pursue happiness. We just need to pause and let it catch up with us.
0: And I think that gets at precisely why the practice of meditation, the teachings of Buddhism and the teachings of His Holiness in particular have been so magnetic for so many people in the West as they have discovered this. There is at the heart of Buddhist teaching a notion about happiness that finding calmness in the mind, right, is part of it, which is something you just pointed at. And I'd like to draw out the three of you about corollaries in your traditions obviously Sabbath is one for generating calmness of the mind
6: Uh, of course in the Islamic tradition the five daily prayers themselves you pull yourself out of the flow of time in a space that is sacralized and the ablution itself in a sense washes the soul as well as the body and for a few minutes even if your mind is running like that you have to force yourself to pull yourself out of that context. Of course, only the saints succeed completely. But nevertheless, the exercise has a tremendous effect upon having at least certain punctuations put upon the sentence of our life every day that goes faster and faster. And secondly, of course, the month of Ramadan, the month of fasting, when which took a whole month. The tempo of even big cities slows down. If around 6.15, 6.20, when the sun sets, You go to such a big city as Cairo or Karachi where the streets are cluttered, you can't drive, all the streets are empty, everything slows down. And this uh, power Ramadan has been able to preserve despite everything. I think, uh, of course, you have, for example, you used to have Lent and you have, of course, Yom Kippur, the Holy Days in Judaism, so we share that. But in Islam you have a whole month of fasting which changes the whole tempo of life. And the daily prayers, they're very, very central. They're like Buddhist meditations in Islamic form, but coming in a punctuated manner throughout the day. And of course, some people then have more extended prayers. We have our own form of meditation, invocation, contemplation. But that's only for people who are spiritually very active, you might say, like, let's say, monks in Tibet. But for the ordinary Muslims, those other practices are ubiquitous. They run throughout all of society. You know, in some Islamic cities, uh, let's say for the noon prayer, you could go to the bazaar, put your hand in and pick up all the jewelry and put it in your pocket and go. Because all the shops are left open, there's absolute quiet, and everyone is in the mosque praying. It's really quite a remarkable experience that, has, that continues to this day.
4: Um, obviously, in Judaism, as in all the religious traditions, there are elite forms of meditation, but what really interests me, as, as interests you, is just the simple basic act of prayer. And prayer for me, daily prayer, three times daily, I'm, we're not quite up to five times daily, but <laughs> we're impressed. Um, three things happen when I pray. The first thing is thanks. You know, the first prayer we pray, thank you, God, for giving me back my life. When I was on honeymoon with Elaine, um, for reasons we didn't go into, I I almost drowned. I was in Italy. I couldn't swim. I was out of my depth. There was no one close. And I remember as I went under for the fifth time, thinking two thoughts. Number one, what a way to begin a honeymoon. (laughs) And number two, what's the Italian for help? <laughs> so, you know, when I get up every morning, I know what it feels. Thank you, God, for giving me back my life. And that is the first, that underlying sense of gratitude you get when you pray. The second thing is confession. The truth is that it is so important to be able to say, God, I got it wrong. Because God forgives when I get it wrong. And he believes in me more than I believe in myself. If he didn't have total faith in me I wouldn't be here to begin with. Our culture, you know, our modern western culture makes it very hard to fail. But we all fail. And therefore when we have an unforgiving culture, We have to fake it and pretend we never did fair. And when I am able to say to God, God, you know that I got it wrong. And he says to me, yeah, Jonathan, you got it wrong, uh, but try again next time. And you feel the ability to acknowledge your mistakes, then you grow, you learn by those. So that is the second thing. And the third thing is simply the basic experience of prayer altogether, standing in the presence of a a deeper form of being, knowing that this universe is not indifferent to my existence, deaf to my prayers, blind to my hopes, that somehow there is something that is giving me hope. And when I feel in that presence, of the being at the heart of being. Then we experience the greatest line of all in the life of faith from Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We can face the future without fear if we know we do not face it alone.
0: Richard,
5: sorry, we, then. Share, we share many of the same forms of prayer uh, prayer as awareness and attending. Um, Christians may happen in other traditions as well sometimes pray with images, sometimes pray without images, a kind of emptying prayer. I think the part that is perhaps most attractive to new learners is about understanding all of existence as prayer. The Celts were very effective at um, blessing each moment of the day, blessing the milking of the cow, blessing the covering of the fire at night. Uh, Brother Lawrence uh, blessed the washing of dishes, uh, runners begin to understand the blessing that comes with putting your body to work and emptying the mind. There, there are practices that each of us participates in that are about simple awareness of God's presence in every breath, in every moment, in every encounter, in every challenge. Uh, it's it's that awareness and attending that is, I think, so significant.
6: Just- the
1: points that, uh, rabbi
6: I agree with completely and they're all very also much emphasized in Islam in Islam as in Judaism in a sense priesthood is divided among all human beings and each person stands directly before God but perhaps there's one thing that the rabbi doesn't know and his friend doesn't know that I should mention, the Muslims owe a great deal to Moses. You said you pray three times a day, we pray five times a day. We believe that when the prophet ascended from Jerusalem to heaven, God taught him the daily prayers that we performed. And when he was coming down, Moses met him and said, how many pra- units of prayer did God order you to get, tell your followers? He said, 51. He said, they'll never do it. Believe me, I have a 1,000 years of experience. Go back and bargain with God go back and bargain with God and so the Prophet went and bargained We came down to 17 units thank you very much That otherwise we would have to do 51 so Muslims always tell you Moses for that <laughs>
0: and your Holiness, um, Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, some of these Buddhist practices to calm the mind, have become very important in many lives, including people who are devout uh, Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Buddhism offers itself up. I can imagine that people have said to you, though. I mean, you have. It's, it's not just about calmness of mind; it's training your mind and. You in particular, uh, your daily practice is known. You spend hours in meditation and prayer. Uh, I, think, I think most of us in this culture feel that we do not or cannot carve out that kind of space for training our minds to get to the point, as you said, that in the midst of something that feels sad or tragic, we can gain a distance on it. What, what advice do you give people who feel that it is hard to make that kind of space in a modern life.
2: I always believe, and also accordingly, I express or telling people that different people, different say they, uh, religious tradition, it is much better to keep one's own tradition. It's, it's much better. Much better, more su- suitable. suitable. So in the West, judo christian background, uh, generally, and to some extent, Islam also. So all these taste religion. So it is much better you know, to keep that tradition. Uh, and then like. Uh, I think Buddhist terminology, mindfulness.
7: Mindfulness practice.
2: Ah, uh-huh. it's a constant sort of watch one's own mental state. This, whether you see use that term or not, all religion, is a practice that, isn't it? Hmm? Self-discipline. Now, like Ramadan or five times prayer or three times prayer, mindfulness working. And during that sort of prayer, uh, your mind fully concentrate on Allah or God like that. That also is a single-pointed mind sort of practice, meditation. Meditation. So all major religious tradition, different sort of, I think, different term, but same meaning. Uh, So, some my Christian friend, is see, uh, showing interest or, in fact, I think, practice a certain sort of, also techniques or method to increase compassion, to increase patience. Uh, so that's OK. These are common practice. Basically, it's a practice of love, compassion, forgiveness, tolerance self-discipline, a contentment, all these same practice, common. Common. Uh, so one thing, the theory of some kind of relative. Relativity.
3: Yeah.
2: Relativity. Uh, uh, absence of independent existence. One, my Christian friend, one monk, now he already passed away. Uh, he always showing interest about some of these Buddhist practice. And then one day, he asked me about this see, theory of emptiness. Uh, although he himself, you see, have some kind of, sort of explanation according to Christianity, uh, so total submission oneself to God, so the self-centered attitude empty. That kind of sort of meaning. Meaning. Good. But the uh, other meaning of emptiness means absence of independent existence, no absolute. So he sort of further sort of was today inquiring about that. Then I told him, This is not your business. (laughs) This is Buddhist business. (laughs) (laughs) So in the philosophical field, you see, there's differences, theistic religion and non-theistic religion. So it is better you see, to keep one's own sort of tradition. That's much effective, much better. Some people look, you see, fond to, uh, to take, something from here, take something from here, something from here, something uh, from here. No real solid basis, that's not good.
3: Syncretism is terrible. syncretism so that's what you're talking
2: about i think even food is all sort of uh unique it. things remain there more tasteful everything mixed they taste less
0: So, speaking of food, bodily pleasures, where does the body come into all this? Where does the body come into happiness? Um, Bishop Shore, you mentioned running, and I know that now, you have... No,
2: no, I, I have, to, have to add. Yes. The important is, uh, I think people usually, as you mentioned, you say, rush, rush. I think, sorry, crunch, love on. So this, you see, they are whole attraction towards the external facilities. That's mm-hmm. right. Huh? You see, lost the recognition of importance of sort of uh, inner values. Mm-hmm.
3: Internal resources.
2: Oh, uh, internal resources. And you think more inward, then you find there's no need of physical rush. Of course, mental rush is still there. <laughs> so, that I think the. Uh, I think some of the sort of problem, I have too much busy life. I think too much attraction about uh, outside. outside. Mm-hmm. And we, many, many people, you see, believe the real sort of happiness come from outside, from money, from power. That's fundamentally wrong. Real happiness must come from within. These are just the, factors uh, for, uh, for the, conditions. Which, or conditions for. Real sources from within, whether believer or not, the, not no. believer. That, as a human being, as a, as a sort of being with consciousness, the ultimate source of happiness within ourselves. That's very important.
0: But again, I do want to ask about this being embodied. I don't, it, it, it can sound like we're having a discussion about happiness that's very cerebral, very mental. You, for example, Bishop Shorey have talked, has spoken about running as uh, body meditation. Let's talk a little bit about our physical selves in this condition of happiness.
5: I think there, there are two essential pieces to that. One is the ancient ascetical tra- tradition that trains the body um, so that the mind can, in some sense, do its work more effectively the mind and the heart and the soul. And the other is this sense that I will speak of in my own tradition as incarnation. Um, our bodies are a blessing. They are evidence of God's love for what is created. And the uh, the, the sense of happiness of the whole creation, you know, shalom, the reign of God, is about bodily needs satisfied. People have enough to eat. They have shelter. They have meaningful work. They live in peace. They can watch their children grow up and the Elders can wander in the street. Uh, It's both. It's both understanding bodies as tools for working toward happiness, for working toward justice and peace, and that, that justice and peace and embodied blessing needs to be available to the whole community.
4: Um, well obviously Judaism has a certain approach to the physical dimension of the spiritual life it's called food (laughs) in fact somebody once said you know if you want to crash course in understanding all the Jewish festivals they can all be summed up in three sentences they tried to kill us we survived Let's eat. (laughs) But I think that is part of our faith, that God is to be found down here in this world, that God created and seven times pronounced good. And I find one of the most striking sentences in Judaism is in the Jerusalem Talmud, is the statement of Rav that in the world to come, a person will have to give an account of every legitimate pleasure he or she deprived themselves of in this <laughs> life. Because God gave us <clears throat> this world to enjoy. And I must say that, quite apart, from, I mean, and absolutely, Judaism has taken, and I think we share this, but Judaism has said, there are three approaches to physical pleasure. Number one is hedonism, the worship of pleasure. Number two is asceticism, the denial of pleasure. And number three is the biblical way, the sanctification of pleasure. And that, I think, is important and very profound. And I must say that, you know, sometimes, the best kind of interfaith gatherings I mean, mean, theology is extremely wonderful. It's very cognitive. That is a very polite English way of saying boring. Um, (laughs) and, And sometimes, the best form of interfaith is you just sit together, you eat together, you drink together, you share one another's songs. You listen to one another's stories. And just enjoying the pleasures of this world with people of another faith, that is beautiful. I would add just one other thing. If there is one thing I find beautiful beyond measure, it's there in my own tradition, in what we call hospitality, very real element of Christianity and Islam and Buddhism. It's a super element in Sikhism, what's called It's not just my physical pleasures, it's giving physical pleasure to those who have all too little. And one very great Hasidic teacher once said, somebody else's material needs are my spiritual duties. And that, I think, is where we join in sharing our pleasures with others.
6: The body, in a sense, is like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there is need for denial. On the other hand, the body is a manifestation of divine presence on the highest level. And there is no sanctification possible without a certain form of asceticism. The Germans saying that there is no culture without asceticism, and that's true. We have to deny in order to be able to confirm that which transcends that, what we deny the testimony of faith in Islam, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, so the denial of all the g- gods with a small g, all the false idols that we worship in order to confirm the divine reality. Now, in all the monotheistic religion, in fact, in all religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, there's an element of asceticism in order to free the soul from the entrapment, not of the body itself, but the image of the body upon the psyche or the psyche is that element of the psyche which dominates over the body and which in a sense imprisons us. There is no religion without asceticism, that's impossible. However to deny the reality of the body sanctified what he called sanctification is also a very great error and as great tradition in Buddhism which began by emphasizing uh, samsari, you end up with a sacred body of the Buddha. And we have that in another form in Islam. We have that in all the Abrahamic religions, the fact that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and not only of the soul, which we share with Islam, share with Christianity and Judaism. And also in Christianity, the body of Christ, the central body of Christ, is one of the paradoxes for myself as a Muslim looking upon Christianity. It's a religion in which you eat the body of the founder every day in the Eucharist in a certain sense symbolically, but there was such a long period of theology of opposition to the sacred aspect of the body. So only sidestream currents in Christian theology delved into it, and now it's coming to the fore. And the question of the denial of the sickness of the body, which also has to do with sacred aspect of sexuality, and the relation that we have with the world of nature, and the denial of the sacred aspect of nature, they all go together, cluster together and to realize that our body is also has a sanctified aspect, that it's a projection of, in a sense, a s- the subtle body, the spiritual body, on this plane, and especially physical beauty reflects sometimes a very, very deep beauty. It's not skin deep, necessarily. And that spiritual beauty is always reflected in the physical. We grow it uh, when we're born, as a young man and woman, we might be beautiful, but that's, I've done, done nothing for that. That God has done that. When we are old, if we're still beautiful, it's the reflection of our actions in this world. A person who grows old beautifully, there's something inward that has been transformed. And so the body is very, very precious. The care for it, the understanding of its significance, and a deeper level of its spiritual significance, which have this in Tantrism in the Indian universe, and we also have it in Islam, is, I think, a very, very significant revival of religious teaching that has to take place. In all the religions today.
0: And Your Holiness, I, I wonder how you think about the body. Where does the body come into your imagination about spiritual happiness?
2: Without a body, then no longer brain. (laughs) Right. <laughs> <laughs> then difficult to think. <laughs> so, from the Buddhist viewpoint, of course, the uh, tradition which, uh, based on law of causality, is the thinking, uh, analyzing, is the most important. For that, human brain. Is really very smart. The other animals, they also, from the Buddhist viewpoint, they also have the feeling, yet they have no such wonderful sort of uh, brain. So therefore, uh, we believe, we consider you see, this body is something very, very precious. So lu uh, uh, for example, in the uh,
7: there's a Buddhist practices that involve one's relationship with uh, an attitude towards uh, one's body, one's material resources, and also one's collection of virtues. And uh, in in con- in the connection to all of these, one needs there you know there are different stages of practice that involve first of all kind of letting go. And then, uh, and then the second under stage... Under different
2: circumstances.
7: Under, under certain circumstances, uh, we have to... The circumstances
2: are such, you see, give even your body, your organ, something really benefit, then give. But then... In other circumstances, uh, you must protect.
7: Protect, so there is a kind of a guarding and protecting and nurturing of the body. And then... Uh, this thaw- <laughs> is and then also perfection of those resources and body and then uh, increasing and enhancing their uh, capacity. So there's a complex relationship between you know, both body resources and one's virtues.
2: And also, also I already mentioned at the beginning, is it two different kind of satisfaction. One satisfaction, of course, a comfortable shelter, uh, so sufficient food. Uh, And also sufficient sleep, you see, provides certain degree of satisfaction. That also, you see, we we have to acquire. Nothing wrong. And comfortable sort of sustain your body fit. Then your mind, mental function becoming more effective. Physically, too much tire. Then mental function also difficult. Uh, so in any way there's some happiness certain degree of happiness or satisfaction related with sensorial that's the body uh, another uh, the level, of happiness. level of happiness or satisfaction is mental state uh, between these two mental state is more important I think obviously mentally mentally Happy, Uh, even you see see some purpose, even your physical sort of difficulties. Now, Ramadan, you see, daytime, whole day fasting, you may feel a little hungry or some sort of kaswata, even tiredness. But mentally, uh, you voluntarily take that, that hardship, Uh, so that gives you satisfaction mentally. So, mental satisfaction can subdue physical difficulties. Other hand, mental unhappiness, mental sort of pain cannot subdue by physical comfort. So mental state is more superior and more important.
0: And Your Holiness, um, compassion is obviously central to what you teach uh, and also to your understanding of a happy life. You have written and spoken a great deal about practicing compassion towards enemies, towards those who hate you. Um, This is a moment in American political life and cultural life where there is a great deal of hatred and lack of compassion of enemies. And I wonder, uh, just to bring this discussion to another level, to a social level, what advice you might offer to this moment in our collective life?
2: Jesus Christ, you on the
7: For example, in the gospel, um,
0: you know, in the gospel,
7: if you find the commandment that if some hits you on your right cheek, then turn the other
2: cheek. So there's this sort of... Same idea, practice of patience and practice of tolerance.
5: Yes, but but also subverting, subverting the violence. Uh, using the violence, in some sense, the energy of the anger um, to change the situation.
3: No. But what does
0: that mean in practical terms? How, uh, yeah. how would that look?
2: That are also similar. They're also similar. Uh, now here you say we have to go to a more deeper level.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The violent, real demarcation, violence and non-violence is not on the level of physical action, but mental action. Right. Right. A certain sort of physical, rough action, right. wrathful right. action, uh, motivated by sense of concern of the well-being of others. Right. Oh, in order to stop their wrongdoing, right. if they carry wrongdoing. The ultimately they will suffer. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware that and purely the sense of concern of their long-term well-being use some harsh method and force, forcefully stop their wrongdoing. It's non-violence.
5: Hitting on one cheek um, in the ancient world, the superior would hit with the back of the hand. And if you turned your head, he would have to use the other hand and look you in the face. So suddenly the dynamic has changed. He would have to see you. Um, He can't simply hit hit an inferior.
3: Um,
4: There's a line to me in the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy so unexpected And I want, I think we all have to hear it. Here it is. Moses is talking about the experience of the Israelites in Egypt. We read about it in the book of Exodus. An age of oppression, of slavery, of almost genocide, attempted genocide. And eventually the Israelites leave, they go through the desert. And as they're about to cross the Jordan and enter the land... Moses says these words, Do not hate an Egyptian, for you are a stranger in his land. Now, that language is very odd. You're a stranger in his land sounds as if the Egyptians gave them hospitality, as if they put up the Israelites in the Cairo Hilton. And it wasn't like that. So what is Moses saying? Do not hate an Egyptian, for you are strangers in your land. He is telling the Israelites, You have left the physical Egypt. Now you must leave the mental experience of Egypt. You have to let go of hate. Because if you do not let go of hate, you will never be free. If the Israelites had continued to hate their enemies, Moses would have taken the Israelites out of Egypt, but he would not have taken Egypt out of the Israelites. They would be slaves to their past, slaves to their feeling of pain and injustice and grievance. This is the line he taught them, and the line we have to repeat day after day in this difficult and dangerous 21st century. You have to let go of hate if you want to be free. Thank
2: you. Thank you. One of my Muslim friends explained to me. One interpretation of jihad, uh, not only sort of uh, attack on other, but uh, real meaning is uh, combat or attack your own of uh, wrongdoing or, negative, or uh, negative, uh, negativities. Uh, negativities. So the
6: greater jihad, the bigger jihad is to combat your own negative forces within you. Huh? Yes, yes. So in that sense,
2: the whole Buddhist practice is, is practice is of jihad.
6: That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. That's a good point. A great think
0: conclusion for a, an interfaith summit. <laughs> yes.
6: I have no choice but to say a few words because what my dear friend Rabbi Sachs, said about the question of hatred uh, and anger right now is directed more than anywhere else towards the Islamic world as far as the West is concerned. The Buddhist world does not share in that nor does the Hindu world. And it brings up of course some very intractable problems at the heart of which is the Arab-Israeli conflict which goes back precisely to rooted attitudes if I can put it mildly which have to be given up if you're going to have peace. But there's something more profound that is going on here. I was alluding to it last night when I gave a talk here, uh, which is very, very sad. And that is that we've all been engaged as representatives of different religions to try to better understand each other during the last half century. Half a century ago, people in Egypt or Iran knew much less about Buddhism than they do now. His books had not been, many of the books what he had written had not been translated, let's say, into my own mother tongue, Persian. A lot of things like that have changed. But one thing which is going the other way is the rise in hatred in America against Islam until a few years ago, it was against Islamic so called extremists. Now it's against Islam itself. And many of the old texts written hundreds of years ago in the Middle Ages, in Europe, in Latin, have been resuscitated and regurgitated right here in uh, Atlanta and other cities uh, and coming out of the mouth of people from whom one would not expect this and claim to be Christians and brings up a terrible response, terrible reaction, uh, which is going to endanger, as I said last night, also the future of all Christian communities in the Middle East, in the Islamic world. And uh, the question that always comes up, the question of compassion that you ask, Compassion is meaningless if you have no power to either do good or evil. It can be Compassion towards the Australian aborigines, what effect does it have? And usually it's combined when you can do something mm-hmm. and you exercise it, as the Buddhists have emphasized so much. Now, uh, people do not understand two things. First of all, Islam as a religion, not only is not deprived of compassion, but after Buddhism, there is no religion that speaks as much as compa- of compassion as Islam does. Every chapter of the Quran begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the name of God. The most merciful and compassionate. Or all merciful or compassionate. And secondly, that compassion towards other creatures has not been any less in the Islamic world than anywhere else. You cannot say God created humanity and he divided compassion. He gave four fifths to Tibet one-tenth to, uh, let's say, Belgium and then the rest is scattered over the rest of the earth. Of course that is not at all all the case. But what is involved here is the question of power. That is, it's not the Islamic world that has invaded the two neighboring countries of the United States. It's the other way around. And the great problem for the Muslims is the exercise of compassion at a time when they're being bombed every night and the important for Christians in this country to understand what it means to be placed in such a situation. How to exercise Christian compassion, Christian charity. We are in a very, very complicated situation. And I think the leaders, the religious leaders, spiritual leaders of these traditions, religions, including Islam, must be able to speak up to this issue. Simply vilification, that I have all the uh, a monopoly on compassion, you don't have any of it, you're just brute force or so forth. That's not going to solve any problem at all. And we need to, and that itself, to understand that the other can also be compassionate, is a form of compassion. If you're a follower of Christ or of the Prophet, but you must exercise that. No Muslim has a right to say that a Christian does not have compassion because somebody dropped a bomb on his brother's head last night, and vice versa. And this is a very important issue we are stuck on. Especially in what's called the Middle East today.:
0: That's a very big subject., yes. okay, I'm out of my medium. I'm used to being in a recording studio where there aren't people applauding <laughs> of, of wonderful answers. And we're almost at we I are want out of it. time. I want to yes, you may.:
2: no. <laughs> With this also sort of topic, I want to add one thing. One year after the September 11th event, uh, some kind of anniversary, sort of prayer meeting uh, in Washington, the National Cathedral. Uh, At that time, I was in Washington. So they invited me to uh, that ceremony. So there I mentioned these sort of was the unthinkable sort of destruction uh, carried by a few people whose background Muslim? Uh, these few Muslims sort of behavior cannot symbolize uh, cannot, cannot represent whole Islam. Uh, so it is absolutely unfair or wrong due to few individuals misbehavior and whole sort of system whole tradition uh, whole tradition and now consider a little bit negative it's totally wrong as far as mischievous people few individual mischievous people every tradition among them uh, among the hindus among the jews among the christians among the buddhists uh, in in also. Every sort of religious tradition, some mischievous people are always there. <laughs> so that cannot sort of symbolize or represent the whole tradition I mentioned there. Uh, since then, many occasion in Europe, in Latin America, and also in India, I always say, as uh, uh, sort of Shia people it is very important to make distinction the whole system and a few mischievous people's activities. This must be because of this. Differentiated. Uh, uh, so the Differenti- distinction. Uh, that uh, here also I want to, to tell to tell you. Uh, now I think media people and also even some sort of writers, you see, create impression clash Western civilization, and Islam. Uh, such things are just one individual sort of view. Uh, I think uh, there is no valid uh, basis. So some Islam practitioner, you see, actually, you see, uh, as we all know, this because of that, because of mentioned that word, uh, genuine islam practitioner should extend compassion towards all creatures as always mentioned and then also you should say a uh, genuine practitioner of islam uh, if if anyone who create bloodshed uh, he or she actually not a genuine islam practitioner they say that. So we must uh, so we must that touch the the essential message and don't look these few individuals' behavior. That's very important.
0: We need to finish. Professor Nasser, you've written that one of the Arabic words most commonly used for happiness literally means expanded. This follows very much on what His Holiness just said and Rabbi Sachs has written that in the 21st century all religious people must feel themselves enlarged rather than threatened by the presence of religious others. I I personally feel that this uh, discussion has been a wonderful demonstration of that. And of course, again, it is such an honor to be here with His Holiness and with all of you, and I want to thank you so much, and thank you all for coming, and this concludes our conversation.